you are listening to Single Serves. My name is Arno Marturet and I am your host. Single Serves is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio and follow us on social media under the handle at revelator underscore T-O. It's R-E-V-E-L-A-T-E-U-R underscore T-O. With over 35 years of experience, Udo Schliemann is one of Entro's most skilled designers, leading a team of professionals in identity development, corporate communications, and branded environments. His work has received numerous awards, too numerous to list here, and has been published internationally. In 2017, Udo was elected to become a member of the distinguished Royal Canadian Academy of Arts. So thank you very much, Udo, for being on the show. It's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. So can you start by telling us who you are and what you do in three sentences or less? Well, I'm a graphic designer by training and by heart, I would say which means I'm curious about this world, design, architecture, art, and people. Important in my education in Germany is that I was mentored by Anton Stankowski, who was one of the great design personalities in Germany. And uh, that I'm in that space for a long time, for almost 40 years, and half of that in Canada. All right, that's great. So today we're, um, we've met, got together to talk about evidence-driven design and how that applies to your world. Can you tell us what it is to begin with? Well, evidence-driven design or evidence-based design or sometimes also called research-informed design is a process of basing decisions mostly about the built environment, for example, especially in hospital design on credible research to achieve the best possible outcomes. So there's nothing wrong about it. It means that you avoid mistakes, that you check what has already been researched in a certain area or for a certain problem, but also to find out what are the specific issues in in the task you have at, uh, at hand. So on a high level, I think I understand what it means, but do you have a, a concrete example, maybe a project you've worked on or something similar that uh, could um, exemplify what you've t- you're talking about? Um, it, in our case, um, for example, we work for uh, one of the large uh, banks in Canada, and we did um, a research project about the use of color in, in an office setting for that bank. And uh, so the colors um, that eventually were chosen were not just chosen based off my preferences and my instincts, but we really investigated in in research um, with a group of selected people from that institute and and had certain questions and and really evaluated the feedback um, from that research, uh, from these workshops, 
So it's not only quantitative research, but also qualitative research. And mm. that influenced at the end, the outcome of what colors we have chosen for, for these office environments. I think that's a fantastic example. Um, so let's go back to uh, evidence-driven design. And um, does it have anything to do with data collection and analysis? It certainly has. So data can give you useful information about a problem. <clears throat> For example, in a hospital setting, what would otherwise not come to the surface or to your attention. So it really brings out issues that you haven't thought about. There's been a tendency, however, especially in North America, uh, to want to measure everything, even the most insignificant of metrics, in the hopes that more data equates to more knowledge. And more knowledge helps to make more informed decisions. There's a problem with that, however. It's that raw data isn't knowledge. And not all data are made equal. So it's also a focus uh, or focus the attention right from the get-go on the results of this data, while vision and imagination are left out. So data also only collects information about what was and what currently is. So it's, it's, it's a look through the rear mirror. What we have to do is, you know, what will be in the future? So yeah. As designer and architects, we need to project into the future, which of course is very difficult. Like to approve in cases, um, um, you know, we worked on projects with uh, uh, HPA, Harriet uh, Pontbrilli Architects, mm -hmm. on the Princess Margaret Hospital and the Casey House. And um, this project started with a vision by the architect. And he holds on to that vision um, to the very end. And it's only through that vision to create a better place for uh, patients, a warm, a welcoming place, a mixture of hospital, home, and hotel. And when you start with that vision, the outcome, and it shows in these two projects, are much more um, refined and um, much more pleasing and welcoming for the patients than if you start with data right away. We have seen a lot of hospital projects that use data-driven design um, and evidence-driven design, but the results are still, um, you know, just normal, let's say. Mm -hmm. so it's, it's important as a designer and as an architect to start with a vision. And I'm so glad you've already touched on the dangers of uh, considering all data equal because I agree with you wholeheartedly. There's, I'm in my opinion, misguided tendency to collect data about everything and measure everything, but then not to know what to do with that data or how to interpret it or even how to separate the good data from the bad data or useful data from not from not useful data. So, you've already kind of answered my next question which was, are there any dangers on relying on data too much? And I think we've already covered that. But I do uh, want you to talk a little bit about how to pick the right data that's going to actually help you design better environments and, and what that looks like in, in your day-to-day -day work. Um, yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. And um, I will use a quote by Henri Thoreau, and he was a, or Henry probably, but uh, he was a, a, an American uh, writer. Mm -hmm. And he said, it's not what you look at that matters, but what you see. 
And that's exactly right. So it takes time to learn to see properly. It mm -hmm. also means that you become, as a designer, a keen observer, not only of Gestalt, but of your environment, that you read a lot, that you are curious about the world. A designer doesn't start research when he has to. A designer is questioning the status quo in general. So he's always in a research process through doing, training like an athlete and observing, in short, through empirical knowledge, we gain insight that leads to better results, not just from data. Because data gives you a number and this number can be skewed or can be interpreted in different ways. Qualitative data in form of really um, paying attention to the people, asking questions, seeing your clients as partners and the back and forth and finding a solution together, that is the right form of information that you need to uh, bring the design forward. And if you pay deep attention to something, you actually, or it actually changes reality. <laughs> as a best example is, is love. Um, there is a, is a wonderful piece by Tolstoy in, in Anna Karenina, where uh, Count Vronsky um, is stepping down and he tries not to look long at her, his, his beloved uh, um, uh, girl, um, as if she were the sun. Yet he saw her like the sun, even without looking. And I, I think this, this, this quote from Tolstoy is, is, is shows so well how, how the reality changes when every fiber in your body is in it, right? And so as a designer, you really have to be deep entrenched and really um, be involved and pay keen attention to your work. And that is something what children still have naturally, they really go deep in, 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 and get lost in their ability to, to go deep and, and um, be consumed with full attention. And, and we have lost that as adults. Yeah, I think that's true in general. And I think also your, your point of um, uh, saying that designers should be curious and constantly exploring is also something that's been lost a little bit in the industry, at least in my side, which is architecture interior design, where people tend to just want to design a product that may or may not be very good, but there's not a lot of firms out there that take the time to do that deep intellectual exploration on how to solve a problem without any preconceived solution in mind. So I'm really glad you mentioned that. Um, so Henry Ford is famous for having said, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't know the exact phrasing of what he said, but that if, um, if he asked his customers what they wanted, they would have tell, told him he, he should make a faster horse when Henry Ford is known for basically uh, democratizing the car with the Model T. So my question in, in that line of thinking is how does one balance insights from data and other source of, sources of information and the use of intuition when designing a solution to a problem. Yeah, so Henry Ford's example um, is something that we face every day, um, that the, the customer or the client um, can only answer to a problem in the current way or looking backwards and, and not seeing what could be so one of the role of a designer is to open up a new vision, a new example of how a problem can be addressed. And it can come in many ways. It can be, you know, uh, we mentioned the example of color, you know, 
that you use different colors that suddenly change a room completely. Um, it can be in, in the way we speak in wayfinding to, um, uh, to the audience in, in a larger project. Um, because what we do um, is always, uh, has always a social political character. And the way we, we transport that information, the way we portray that information is, is very important in our business and has a social political influence on the audience. Mm -hmm. um, so how does one uh, in the design process or in the act of being creative um, set themselves up to um, have the ability or the opportunity to make uh, serendipitous discoveries or come up with completely unforeseen ideas that um, really can't be traced to a particular uh, set of data or some research, but are just more the, the fun a function of uh, all those ideas going into one's brain and then just coming out with a very clear uh, concept or idea. Do you have any like tricks or tips or, or processes that you use to allow yourself to, to make those serendipitous connections? Yeah, you make a good point here with serendipity because um, serendipity is happening in the real world, in the physical world, where you have chance encounters, where you see suddenly things, when you sketch out things and, and you put it side by side. But in the, in the computational world, in the digital world, serendipity is not available. It's, it's just not there. And it's, it's a very crucial um, uh, factor in design. A lot of design happens just by chance encounters. What happens um, when you long and intensively study a problem and, and try to work something out and only when, when the logic in your brain basically gives up, then you find a solution of a certain kind, um, almost like a joke. A joke is, a, is you put two things together that don't belong together, and that is the essence of the joke. Sigmund uh, mm -hmm. Freud wrote a book about it. And, and similarly in design, you know, if, if, if you just go logic by logic, it doesn't happen. So sometimes you have to investigate a little bit of time or a lot of time to come to that point where this logic breaks down in the brain and you find different things that connect to each other. Um, but in general, I would say these unforeseen discoveries um, happen still in the old fashioned ways. So you investigate, you pay attention, you talk with your clients, and you see them as partners in the solution and you have the willingness to learn and be taught as well. So it's really the interaction with the client who knows everything, but therefore is stifled uh, with too much knowledge. Mm -hmm. You as a designer only need to comprehend 30 or 40% to be still free for innovation to happen. If you know too much, you are in the same problem as your client is. Um, the other necessity is to be a leader in your design team. So in my role, for example, as a leadership, um, I see it more as a stewardship. And it is your role or my role to bring out the best in your colleagues. It is important that you give the young designers the security to grow. They always I always compare it uh, with judo. In judo, which I practiced for many years, um, you first learn how to fall mm -hmm. for a long time. Mm -hmm. until you have no fear of falling anymore. And that's similar uh, with design. You have to help these young people to make mistakes and to allow them to make mistakes. 
and that is through stewardship, not a top-down leadership. For me personally, it's still sketching. So the direct interaction from brain, eye to the hand and vice versa is the fastest, the most direct interaction you can think of. I love it, but I'm, I'm trained in that way. It's very difficult for young people to go this route. Mm -hmm. But for exactly what you said, it also includes serendipity, these chance connections between one or the other sketch. The design process is not mediated through technology. And technology, the computer does not allow for that kind of tashism, which means spontaneity, informal, intuitive, rather than geometric expression. And I really like your judo analogy because I practiced judo for years as a kid too. So I completely understand. So is the solution to um, sign your, uh, your staff to a judo club and have them practice? I think judo is one of the most wonderful sports that you can do because you touch, you have feeling and you learn so much from your opponent just through touch and how he reacts. Um, so as a training for an, an, a school of life for young people, it's wonderful. I think the, the business of design would benefit if we start judo <laughs> in it. Yeah, so jokes aside, how do you, um, how are you being a good steward to your staff and allow them to, what do you specifically do to allow them to fall and not be afraid of it and learn from it? Well, first of all, you have to take away the weight of responsibility uh, from their shoulders. I, I'm not a fan of um, you know, loading the whole responsibility on young people's shoulders. You as a leader and the oversight you have, you have to carry the responsibility because you can, due to your experience, you can handle it better. And uh, so it takes the pressure off from the young people. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't work hard and try their best, but they must feel that you are covered. You, somebody is behind you holding you back. And then you can allow them um, to explore. You also give them all the information. It's not that you are the, the holder, the money back holder who has all the information and you just give out little crumbs uh, in order to control. No, you mm -hmm. give out all the information to the young people. And then again, you are just there to orientate them, to help them to find the right direction. Very good. Uh, where do you personally find inspiration? Uh, inspiration can come from anywhere and from anybody. Um, I don't have a certain recipe for that. Um, and you don't have to be an expert either uh, for inspiration. Um, one thing maybe I want to point out, I lived in two continents, and so in Germany and in Canada. And through marriage, I have a deep connection to a third continent. And this diversity, I would say, uh, the layering of different systems, worldviews, ways of being together, food, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. is an incredible richness in itself. This is, by the way, a huge plus for Canada, diversity and tolerance. I'm also an artist, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning. So through my work in the free space, without a concrete project, without conditions, without budget lines and timelines, I explore form and color, which then influences my work and vice versa. It's a two-way street. Mm -hmm. If you don't mind me asking, where's your wife from? Uh, from Africa, from Burundi. It's a I tiny see. country in Central Africa. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, wonderful country, wonderful people. And I love to be there. And I, I agree with you because I'm in the 
same situation. I grew up in Europe. I live here and uh, my partner is from uh, another area. So I completely see the, how all those influences kind of come together. It's really interesting. Um, have you ever designed anything that uh, would contradict what the data or the research would tell you, but you knew was still the right move to make? And how did that play out? Well, I'm, I would say it's less about data and research. I mean, this is a fairly new discipline, mm -hmm. but it's more about resistance from people to try something new. So you can think, for example, of Frank Lloyd Wright, who had to prove that a slender column fanning out at the top can carry multiple times the weight of what was necessary. Mm -hmm. He used it for an office building. Or think of Jane Jacobs, who had to prove the so-called traffic experts wrong in New York, and then 30 years later again in Toronto, who said, you know, if you close a street, um, it's like water, water will find another route and the traffic problem is the same. And she had to prove that this is wrong and was successful with them. Or take Siama Kariri with uh, the Princess Margaret Hospital, who had to prove the hospital that using wood in a hospital setting isn't a breeding ground for bacteria. So you find always this resistance as usual to new ideas, right? Mm -hmm. Because it is a risk and it will always be a risk because we are humans and we are unpredictable. We make mistakes, but so does big data too, right? As many examples have shown from self-driving cars crashing into someone to the Hunter College High School being supposedly the saddest place in Manhattan a couple of years ago, and the wrongdoings of Cambridge Analytica, just to say a few things, right? So yeah. it's, it's not only humans, big data uh, is, is wrong too. And therefore, it's important to build trust and relationship to the people you work with and to regulate and control big data, build feedback from the bottom up, because it's not only top down, we need that feedback loop. And not only um, 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 and be inclusive in how data is collected. Uh, not biased as, as it's often the case. Um, you know, uh, there's multiple examples of that. So I think we slowly start to rethink. It is extremely difficult because the new thinking does not work with the principle of growth necessarily, but with restraint. And, and I think that's, that's one key issue that, um, and I would like to, to um, take Ron Diverties from the Monk School of Global Affairs. And he said in a recent article, the large idea of civic virtue is to advocate for a restraint. This type of thinking has been neglected in favor of science, technology, engineering, and math. So the left brain hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And while those subjects have been important, an important place in our society, the arts and humanities are what will ultimately help us to manage these larger problems. And I think that this is absolutely true. And, and we are a little bit one-sided and, and data and big data is, is, um, is a result of that one-sidedness. Yeah, that makes sense. What do you think he meant by restraint exactly? I think he meant that we have to restrain in using data. Uh, we have to be inclusive in how we use data and we have to be restrained in general. So it's not gross, it's, it's not an option. Think about um, uh, buildings um, um, and architecture. Like if we would uh, allow the developing world to reach the same level of, of buildings and, and, and space um, that we have, 
um, we would need two worlds um, um, to get all the resources and all the building materials. Um, and it's just not possible. So um, it needs a new thinking, thinking of restraint rather than growth. I think those are perfect words to end on. Um, I don't have any more questions for you. So I want to thank you very much for uh, being so generous with your time and your insights. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope we can have many more in the future. Thank you very much. Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Until next time, ciao.